Well, good morning, everyone. Isn't it amazing I just appear on the stage? I mean, it's <laughs> crazy. Uh, how many of you have friends, relatives in Florida? Uh, see, I knew a lot of a lot of us do. My parents are there. Um, they live right near Orlando area, and my dad's 92, my mom's 87. And when I su- suggested maybe they want to go to a shelter or something, I said, "No, we're we're riding it out." So uh, they're from a tough generation, I can tell you that. So. Uh, Let's not forget to pray for all of our friends and and families that are there. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 4, New Testament, John 4. And uh, we are in this study called Collision, in which we're looking at uh, various people's encounters with Jesus that are recorded by the Apostle John in his biography of Jesus. And uh, as unique as each of these encounters are, one thing is consistently true of all of them, and that is those who had intentional or even unintentional interactions with Jesus, their, their lives were seriously impacted, uh, just drastically changed. And if you've missed any of the series, I encourage you to go online and listen to the past weeks. I think you'll find them helpful. You know, last week, uh, we looked at Jesus' encounter with a really good moral Jewish man, and yet Jesus told him his moral goodness wasn't enough to get him into heaven. And today, we're going to see Jesus interact with a an immoral non-Jewish woman who he assures her lack of moral goodness wasn't enough to keep her out. It's a fascinating story, and um, it begins here in John chapter 4. Apparently, Jesus was traveling through the region of uh, Samaria, uh, and at one point, he he gets tired, so they sit down at a well outside of a town called Sychar, about 30 miles north of Jerusalem, at the base of Mount Gerizim, which today sits in the West Bank. And uh, as Jesus sits down, the disciples go on into town to get some food for lunch because we're told that it was about noon. And uh, around that time, a Samaritan woman came to to draw water from the well, and Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And the woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship, worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. 
So, uh, <clears throat> as we've noted over the last few weeks, uh, many of the cultural and social and religious dynamics that are at play in and around Jesus' interaction with people are often lost on us as 21st century Westerners uh, because, you know, things in the ancient Near East were, were very different from what we know and what we experience today. And yet it's some of those unique dynamics that make this particular uh, encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman uh, so extraordinary. For example... Uh, in first century Palestine, uh, Jews and Samaritans absolutely hated each other. They hated each other. Uh, why? Well, because century earlier, centuries earlier, when uh, the Israelites living in the region of Samaria uh, intermarried with the invading Assyrians, thus adopting uh, many of their pagan practices, social and religious, um, this caused Jews outside the region to view the Samaritans as sort of uh, filthy half-breed sellouts, you know, who were racially inferior. And from a young age, Jewish children were taught to stay out of and away from Samaria because the people there, they, they're, they're unclean and they're despised by God. And as a result, as you might imagine, the Samaritans hated the Jews in return. So there were these irreconcilable differences between the two groups. There was this deep abiding and just really ugly prejudice. Which is why when the woman approaches the well and asks Jesus, will you give me a drink, uh, yeah, when she asked, oh, Jesus asked her to give him a drink, she's shocked by it. I mean, she knew he was Jewish. She could tell by the way he dressed, why, the way he spoke. And she was shocked that he was even there. She says, wait, you're a Jew. And I'm a Samaritan. And I'm a woman at that. How can you ask me for a drink? See, race wasn't just the issue. There was also a gender issue because it was considered socially inappropriate for a man to speak to a strange woman publicly, and yet Jesus does it. And then the fact that this woman comes to the well at noon is very telling. Scholars say that it was uh, in the cool of the early morning hours that women would come from the village uh, to draw water for the day. But this woman comes in the heat of midday. She comes at noon, and she comes alone. Very unusual. No doubt indicating she wasn't welcome with the others. She had to come by herself i.e. she was a social outcast in her community, probably due to what was judged by her peers to be her moral failures with men, the specifics of which are revealed in the ensuing conversation. So all this to say is, right from the get-go, uh, this encounter is extraordinary, you know, because Jesus would not allow geographical, racial, gender, religious, cultural, or moral barriers keep him from going to, reaching out to, and engaging this person who had a need. As Andy puts it, you know, Jesus showed up for her, for this person in need. So what was her need? Well, she was thirsty, right? Obviously, physically thirsty, but more important, spiritually. When she says to Jesus, how can you ask me, ask me for a drink? He, he responds, if you knew who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In ancient Palestine, there was a distinction made between what was called common water, and that was water that was collected in a well or a cistern. It was, just, it was stagnant. You had to scoop it out. There's a difference between common water and what was known as living water. Living water was water that flowed from a spring or a, or a stream, and it was viewed as coming directly from the hand of God. And it was living water that was used exclusively in religious rites of purification, you know, symbolizing spiritual cleansing. So I'm guessing uh, what Jesus offers the woman here was 
pretty significant to her because no doubt she'd been, as a moral outcast, she'd been likely barred from her, her community's purification rituals, which is why what he says to her seems to pique her interest. So she asked him, you know, what are you, what are you talking about? You don't, you don't have anything to draw water from this well, and it's a deep one. Where can you get this, this living water? You know, one of the things uh, that we're going to learn throughout this study series, hopefully we learn more than one, but, uh, you know, at least one thing we'll learn is that Jesus often uses simple metaphors to illustrate profound spiritual truth. Last week, uh, when we saw, we saw him use the metaphor of, of birth, right, explaining to this guy Nicodemus that he didn't need a new religious life to enter the kingdom of God, but he needed a new spiritual life, right? He needed to, as Jesus put it, be born again from above, well, in this case, Jesus uses the metaphor of thirst to make a very similar point to this woman, which was what? Well, he was telling her, look, you come to this well, and you really, when you come, you need to ask me for a drink, because you're thirsty. Not just, not just physically thirsty, but you're spiritually thirsty. There's a deep yearning in your soul. There's a thirst that can't be satiated by anything in this world. You need what only I can give you, living water from the hand of God, for only it can satisfy. You realize, don't you, that uh, what was true of this woman is true for you and me? You know, as human beings, there's this, there's this yearning, there's this thirsting deep inside of each and every one of us that's just longing to be quenched. Henry Sinclair Lewis uh, very, was a very famous American writer. Actually, he's the first American ever to receive the Nobel Prize in literature. And in his first novel, entitled Our Mr. Wren, The Romantic Adventures of a Gentle Man, he tells the story of a young New York businessman who inherits some money and uh, decides to leave his job, you know, leave his reputation, leave his friends, his family, his life behind, to run away with a married woman who chooses to do the same, to leave her life and family uh, behind as well. And at one point on their journey, she makes this observation. She says, you know, on the surface, we seem quite different, but deep down, we are fundamentally the same. We're both desperately unhappy about something, and we don't know what it is. Ironically, it was their unhappiness that brought them together, but didn't solve the problem. Now, I realize this comes out of a fictional story, but for me, I mean, I, it just seems to accurately describe our culture, where on the surface we all seem very different, but down inside we're fundamentally the same, desperately unhappy about something, and we don't know what it is. Now, despite all the things that we have in this culture, in this country, the majority of us are just not really very happy. According to the latest Harris poll, two of three Americans admit to it, to not being happy really at all. So what's, what's the issue? What is the problem? Might I suggest that whether we realize it or not, or whether we want to admit it or not, we're thirsty. We're thirsty. We're thirsty for a sense of purpose. But here's the deal. If we human beings are nothing more than random accidents, of an unconscious biological evolutionary process, as some, some people propose, then search all you want, but you'll never find purpose. Not in your education, not in your job, not in success, not in money, not in possessions, not in relationships. You won't find it. You won't find it because an accident has no purpose. It has no purpose, it has no point, it has no meaning. 
So if that's truly what you are, then you're thirsting for something that doesn't exist. And the futility of that search is just so disheartening. We all thirst for love. For love, we desperately want love. We desperately want someone, a mother, a father, a friend, a fiance, a spouse, someone who will, who will love us unconditionally. Love us unconditionally and, 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 and always be available to us and accepting of us and patient with us and wise and welcoming, always attentive to our needs, always committed to our growth and our welfare. Which explains why we're so messed up. Because there is nobody like that on this planet. There are no people like that who are going to do that. There are no flawless human beings. There are no flawless husbands, wives, friends, fiancés, mothers, or perfectly good loving fathers in this world. There just aren't. Yet we desperately thirst for this kind of perfect love and end up disappointed in those who can't possibly provide it. We thirst for peace, inner peace, peace of conscience, contentment, security. And yet we live in a world that seems increasingly filled with hate and violence and racism, betrayal, instability. We look at the world, we see all of this, and if we're honest, we look at our own lives and we realize, you know what? We're not as good as we could be. We're not as good as we should be, and we're not as good as we present ourselves to be. We do things that are messed up. We do things we regret, and so we struggle with shame. We struggle with guilt, and we can talk to our friends. We can talk to our, our, our roommates, our bartenders, our hairdressers, our therapists, yet we can't seem to find this inner peace that lasts. But we're looking to satisfy all these desires, all these thirsts, you see, in the wrong places. That's the issue. It's only, it's only with God, our creator, do we find purpose to our existence. It's only with, with God, our heavenly father, do we find true, unconditional, perfect love. It's only with God, our redeemer, our savior, can lasting peace and security be found and experienced. So understand, our deepest human thirst is of a spiritual nature. It's a thirst for something more than this world can offer. Albert Camus was a 20, 20th century French philosopher and atheist. It's fascinating because Camus recognized this human longing in everybody. He recognized it. Uh, in his novel titled The Fall, uh, his main character, Clements, uh, in the novel is just brutally honest about all this. He's, and he's brutally honest about his own futile search for meaning and purpose. And this is what Clement says at one point. He says, you know, because I long for eternal life, I went to be with harlots. I drank for nights on end. I slept in bliss, but awoke with the bitter taste of a mortal state. See, Camus, he found the world to be absurd because humans are going around yearning for, for meaning and yet life offers none. It's because we're searching because we're made for something more. Christian author C.S. Lewis in his uh, classic book, Mere Christianity, I think sums the situation up quite well when he writes, creatures aren't born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exist. A baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, there's such a thing as water. Men and women feel sexual desire, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And he's right. We're made for something more than just this. Scripture says God has set eternity in our hearts, 
So we know there's more, and there is. And this is what Jesus is offering the Samaritan woman. You know, he uses the metaphor of living water to say, just as your body craves and needs water from this well, so your soul craves and needs what only I can give you to drink. Living water from the very hand of God that doesn't just symbolize outward cleansing, but truly purifies you from the inside. A spring of water that wells up to eternal life. That's the offer. Spiritual cleansing, eternal life. And how does she respond to that? She says, sir, give me this water, right? And then Jesus says something that I'm quite sure she was not expecting. He says, uh, go call your husband and come back. And she replies, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. Side note on this. There is no possible way for us to know the, the, the exact details of this woman's past love life. We just, we just can't know. Some commentators suggest that she was a prostitute. And I, I'm just, I'm not sure that's a fair assessment. I'm not sure that's a fair assessment. I mean, it, it's likely that divorce was part of her past experience. Uh, perhaps there was a, a, issues of adultery, unfaithfulness. It's possible she was widowed once or twice. I mean, we can't be sure of how or why she had five previous husbands. It's all speculation. What we do know is that the man she was currently living with was not her husband, which at the time and in the culture was morally scandalous in and of itself, making her kind of a reviled person in, in the town, outcast an outcast in her own community. But why did Jesus bring this up? I mean, she essentially says, give me this water, and he essentially says, let's talk about your sex life, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, I used to think, I used to think Jesus was changing the subject here. I'm, I'm no longer convinced that that's true. It seems more likely, that because she wasn't quite getting it, it seems more likely that he was press, just pressing his point even more that she'd been trying desperately in her life to satisfy her deepest human longings in relationships with man after man after man after man after man after man. And it wasn't working. It wasn't working. She was still thirsty. She, she was still missing something. And he wasn't condescending about it, just compassionately honest. He knew that she was broken. He knew that she was alone. He knew that she was searching, searching for love, searching for meaning, searching for peace. But she was searching in the wrong places, the wrong things. And that was the bad news. But then came the good news and what Jesus had to offer her. Living water from the hand of God, forgiveness, eternal life. Now what happens next, for me, is particularly interesting. Just think about this. The woman says, give me this water. Jesus says, go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, that's true, you've had five husbands and the guy you're with now is not your husband. Then what happens? Well, then she does in fact attempt to change the subject. And she says, sir, I see you're a prophet. I see you're someone special. But how about those ancestors of mine who worshiped on this mountain? And what about you Jews who claim that we all need to worship in Jerusalem? What is that about? Well, who's right? Who's wrong? Let's talk religion. I mean, seriously, do you, do you think that this woman suddenly had a burning desire to discuss theology with a strange man? Perhaps. Maybe. 
Or is it more likely she was trying to shift the conversation away from what was a rather personal and painful subject? Could it be that she was, at at this moment, feeling vulnerable, a bit exposed, a bit overwhelmed by the gaze of this stranger who was able to see directly into her life, into her relationships, into her heart, into her very soul? She must have been wondering, how can this guy possibly know these things? And if he knows all about the intimate details of my love life, past and present, he must know everything about me. He must know everything about me. I mean, what would you do? What would you do if Jesus looked directly at you and began reviewing the intimate details of your personal life and relationships? What would you do? I'll tell you what I would do. I'd be like, how about those bears, Jesus? You know, tell me, Mike Glennon today or Mitch Trubisky? What do you think? And for kicks and giggles, tell me, can God create a rock so big that he can't even lift it? Deflect, 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 right? <laughs> I get why she, she wanted to change the subject. We all have wounds. We all have regrets. We all have our secrets. We all have foolish decisions and sinful choices we've made in our past or are living out in our present that are hard to think about, let alone review with some stranger. And I find it so touching, you know, that Jesus doesn't call her out on this. He just goes along. He listens. He respectfully talks to her about worship. And this had a huge impact on her. It had a huge impact on her that this this special person, this Jewish prophet, would not only talk to her a Samaritan, not only talk to her a Samaritan woman, not only talk to her a Samaritan woman who's a social outcast with a troubled life, but that he would keep talking to her even though he was fully aware of her sin and brokenness. In fact, later on, she runs back into town and starts telling people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did, reading between the lines, and yet he still cared about me. He didn't reject me, but he offered me eternal life. Could this be the Messiah? And she asked that specific question because that's exactly what Jesus told her, right? When she changes the subject, raises the issue of temple worship, Jesus answers and makes some statements about it, and Statements that seem to lose her. And finally, it's as if she says, look, I'm not sure about all the things you just said, but I know this. I know Messiah is coming. The Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And so at that point, Jesus declared to her, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ who's offering you this living water, eternal life. And let's, uh, let's make sure not to miss the freeness of the offer. Keep in mind, this whole encounter began with Jesus requesting a drink. And, and the woman said, how can you ask me for a drink? And what's the first thing Jesus says to her? He says, if you knew the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God. In other words, what Jesus was about to offer this woman was all about divine grace. It was all a matter of grace, living water welling up to eternal life was not dependent on whether she could somehow prove she deserved it or that she was worthy of it. It's not, clearly, Jesus said it's not, it's not something that's merited. He says eternal life is free. It's a gift. It's not a wage you earn. And tell me something. What disqualifies a person from earning a wage? 
refusing to do the work required, right? But what could possibly disqualify a person from receiving a gift? Simply a refusal to embrace it, to accept it. Listen, no matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done or failed to do, past or present, the forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus offered this Samaritan woman is offered to you and to me. It is the gift of God. There's no earning it. There's only receiving it, accepting it. It's free. However, make no mistake, it comes at great cost. Not to us, mind you, but to Jesus himself. And he alludes to this when he's explaining to the woman about about a time coming when there would be no need for temple worship in Samaria or in Judea or Jerusalem. Uh, He says, a time is coming, it has not come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Literally translated, he says, an hour is coming, an hour is coming and has now come, basically, when Jews and Samaritans both will be free to worship God anywhere. An hour is coming. Does that sound familiar to anybody? A couple weeks ago, we noted how throughout John's writing, there are several references to the hour that was coming. And do you remember what, it, what we said it always refers to? Jesus' death. Always to his death. Understand, as, as he is talking to this woman, Jesus knew. He knew the offer he was making to her, ultimately the forgiveness and eternal life that would be offered to all Jews, all Samaritans, and to the world, that it would come at a great cost to him. To him, not to us, to him, the Messiah, the Christ, to sacrifice his life for ours. And twice here in this very conversation, Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water, what? That I give. The water that I give. And think about this. While he was being crucified, just, just before he died, at the very end, do you remember what Jesus said? He cried, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. And then he died. Don't you see? On the cross, he experienced the agonizing thirst that we deserve. So we can freely taste living water that wells up to eternal life. And it's a gift. It's a gift you receive. Wisdom cannot find it. Power cannot attain it. Money cannot buy it. Merit cannot procure it. What Jesus offers is God's gift to anyone who will humbly receive it. Did this Samaritan woman receive it? Yes, she did. And we know because later on in the chapter, she along with some other Samaritans who encountered Jesus affirmed their belief in him saying, we know that this man really is the savior of the world. We know it's true. They believed Now, I didn't realize this going into it, but um, this Samaritan Samaritan woman's interaction with Jesus is the longest recorded one-to-one conversation he ever had with anybody, including Nicodemus. In fact, as I was studying this conversation, I couldn't help to keep thinking back to Nicodemus. And it was at some point during the week when it it dawned on me how, placed side-by-side, these two encounters offers a beautiful and comprehensive picture of the good news of Jesus, really what Christianity is all about. What do I mean? Well, to those of us who are over here on this side of things and see ourselves as good, moral, religious people like Nicodemus, Jesus says, your goodness is not enough to get you into the kingdom of heaven. At the same time, 
to those of us who are all over here who identify more with the Samaritan woman and readily admit to our failures and sins and, 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 and everything else, he says, your lack of moral goodness is not enough to keep you out of the kingdom of God. Meaning what? We all need the same thing. Everybody has the same need. Jesus made it clear, the morally upright on this side needs God's grace as much as the morally wrecked on this side needs it, God's grace. Listen, here's the spiritual reality. We're all desperately thirsty. We are. And many of us are looking in the wrong places to the wrong things, even the wrong people to quench our thirst, which is why we're rarely really happy. And we continually feel like something is missing and we're on this unending search to find it. And make no mistake, search as you will. Nothing in this world will truly satisfy your deepest human desire, your spiritual thirst, except for living water that Jesus provides. I mean, it's an amazing offer. Forgiveness, eternal life, and it's a gift directly from the hand of God. You simply need to receive it and accept it. And my hope is that your response today will be like the woman at the well, and that you will say to Jesus, give me this water, for I know you are the Savior of the world. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, I think, I think we'll all admit that... Um, perhaps sometimes more than others, but we're all on this search for, for, for something, uh, for something that, that's missing. And we look, into, we look at relationships to fill the void, we look at things to fill, we look at all these things to fill the void when nothing of this world can fill it. Nothing can quench that inner spiritual thirst except the living water that comes from your hand forgiveness and eternal life that's made possible because of Jesus who on the cross went thirsty agonizingly thirsty so that we might drink deeply of this living water we're grateful Father for your gift the gift that comes from your hand and we're grateful that you you are our creator in whom we find meaning. And you are our redeemer in whom we find salvation and life. And you are our heavenly father who is perfect and who is good and loving, who cares for us no matter, no matter where we've been or where we go. Your unyielding love is always there. And so we worship you this morning, and we thank you for all the things that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, shall we? You know, as a, as a pastor, someone who works for a church, there are a few things that uh, are more exciting and more life-giving than, than sitting across from someone in your office or a coffee shop or attending a service with someone. As they talk about, as they are living this life of trying to quench their, their thirst with all these different things. Their 
job or their paycheck or their family or their relationships or their position or whatever it is. Just trying to trying to find something that will quench their thirst. And then that moment that you get to experience with them when they realize that the only thing that quenches their thirst is Jesus. And when you get to experience that with someone, it's, it's the greatest joy is you get to see them realize that there's one answer, and it's Jesus, the Messiah, the one who has come to save. And I think it's worth mentioning and celebrating that 11 people did that last week in response to the service and the, and the, and the invitation. Yeah. It's incredible. When people, when people say, this is it. My, I, have this, I have this thirst, and it, nothing is working. It's because Jesus is the one that's meant to quench your thirst. You know, I'm glad that you're here this morning, whether you're on the Nicodemus side of things or the woman at the well side of things. Regardless, I think this is the place to be. I think this is a good place to be together as we ask questions and as we learn what it means to follow Jesus. So I'm glad that you're with us this morning. I hope you come back next week as we continue to look at these, these interactions that people have with Jesus. Uh, the, the John study guides that have been available in the resource center that many of you have found helpful. helpful. We, we re- reordered some of those if you're interested and go pick those up. We have some prayer people up front as well that would love to talk to you if, if this stirred something in you and you want to talk to someone, pray with someone. There's a team up here as well. And pray for us and we'll be dismissed. God, you are the only one that can fill our deepest needs, our deepest longings, the things that we thirst for. God, it's you and you alone. And so this morning, I, we celebrate those last week that made the decision to follow you. And we, we ask that if there are others that are just grabbing at opportunities and relationships and resources to try and, to try and fill their life. God, I pray we make it very clear to them today that it's you and you alone. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.